when you have hero ball and you put so much stock into that one player, it can have a negative impact on everyone else that's on the team. Now, not taking anything away from Bryce, not taking anything away from Will, I just think they had to shoulder too much of the burden last year. Well, now those two guys are gone, and I think there's going to be more of a collective approach amongst the roster to elevate their play. Hello and welcome to Always College Football, putting a bow on the week that was SEC Media Days. Today is Friday, July 21st. We hope you're having a terrific day. Hopefully, maybe some of you are starting your weekend a little bit early. If you're watching this with a beer in hand, then my goodness, more power to you, brother. I might be having a beer here in a little bit as well. It's a long week, man. I'm ready for some rest and some relaxation tomorrow and our man. Time to get after it. That's for sure. Great show here today. We're going to talk a little bit about what SEC Media Days meant to us. Were there any takeaways? There's one in particular that I think you might find a little bit interesting. Just that I'll explain it a little bit. I, I almost told you. I almost told you I'm going to resist the urge. So we're going to tell you the biggest takeaway from SEC Media Days and talk a little bit about Nashville, what a great host city it was. But also we're going to play fill in the blank. And for instance, Kubiak has come up with a list of questions. Some are good. Some are okay. But we'll entertain their ridiculousness anyways. Uh, I'm concerned about blank falling short of expectations this year. It's questions like that that will get answered here in just a moment on Always College Football. I'm Greg McElroy. Along with me as always, Mark Kubiak, Jack Foster, and Jake Garcia. And we appreciate you coming to us from wherever you're coming to us from. If you're on the podcast platform, I've asked this for a couple of weeks now, and I really mean this. It would really be helpful. It really would. It'd be very, very helpful if you could just leave us a rating and then leave us a review. It, it's been, I've asked this the last couple of weeks. We just started year number two here on Always College Football, and we don't have a marketing budget. We're not out, you know, buying commercials or placement on Google or anything like that. We just, we just want to provide good content and talk about ball. Like we love it. It's it's our favorite thing in the world. So if you could leave us a review, if you could leave us a rating, it'd be mean an awful lot. For instance, Hook'em Horns, New Jersey left us a review on Monday. Benj underscore 43 left us a review on Wednesday. Y'all, we appreciate it, man. Thank y'all so much for taking a couple extra minutes to do that for us. We're trying to grow here in year number two. Uh, we also had Augie Heath hit us up. We had Slider Guitar hit us up. We see them, we read them, and we appreciate those that have left them. If you could also give us a follow, always CFB on Twitter and at Greg McElroy. Would mean a lot there too because we're trying to make our show after our review of year one. We're trying to make our show more conversational and we're trying to make sure that you guys have a part of our show as well. So if you send us tweets, keep us locked in there because we'll be ha having questions go out. We're going to make sure we get to some of your responses and we're going to have some fun with that. So a loaded show here on Always College Football as we dive in to putting a bow on the SEC Media Days. SEC kickoff 2023 officially in the books, and there were a lot of major takeaways. We do want to play a game fill in the blank in just a moment. The first thing I do want to say is that if the SEC plans on moving the SEC media days around, please strongly consider Nashville on an every other year basis because that was a phenomenal host city. Great location, great venue, 
logistically, everyone can walk everywhere. And it was just a terrific space where everybody didn't feel cram-packed. It didn't feel like there wasn't access to anybody. kind of saw everybody. It was just a really, really good move from the SEC. And if I'm speaking for most of the media that were there in attendance, anyone that's been to Nashville, anyone that's been to Broadway, you understand that the media was very busy when the television cameras and the newspaper writers, when they closed their laptops and turned off their TVs, Broadway was doing pretty well. I'll just say that. All right. <laughs> Terrific job by the SEC. One other thing. Why don't all other conferences do it like that? For instance, the Pac-12 today squeezing all 12 teams in one day. The ACC over a two-day period. The Big Ten over a two-day period. The Big 12 over a two-day period. Like, spread it out. I mean, at most, four schools a day. At most. Now, I know that the interest level in certain parts of the country isn't as significant. It won't be as heavily populated amongst the media members and the credentialed media members. But still, don't you want your schools to have an opportunity to showcase their stories, have a coach to get to the podium and tell their story about what their team's doing and the trajectory that they're on? I just don't understand if the SEC has done their media day's best, why aren't people following suit? I would. If I were in charge of the Big 12, I'd give every coach 30 minutes at the podium, question and answer, all these other things. That's what I'd do. If I were in charge of the Big 10, I'd do the exact same thing. So I hope that more conferences adopt the SEC's way of covering their schools in the summertime moving forward. But I digress. Let's play fill in the blank as it relates to some of these SEC schools and the takeaways from media days. All right. Yeah. First of all, McRoy, start the season in Nashville, end it in Atlanta. I think that's perfect. All right, first, fill in the blank. I am concerned about blank falling short of expectations this year. Now, hear me when I say this answer, because there's going to be a lot of people that will lose their mind, several of which are probably not. I'm not going to concern myself too much with them thinking about my own personal partisanship because... When Rocky Vol tweets at me and says I'm crazy, I'm not I'm not too too worried about that because I don't really worry about my partisanship. I worry more about Rocky Vol's partisanship, and we all know where he stands, or she, whoever it is. When you look at Tennessee, some of the hype right now surrounding Tennessee is getting a little out of control. People saying, hey man, 10 and 2 at the very worst. 11 to 1 possible. Now I understand that you beat Alabama last year. I understand that last year you had really good performance against Florida. You think about where they were. You beat Florida for the really just the second time in the last 18 tries. So much to be proud of with what was accomplished last year. The first 11-win season in two decades, the highest AP ranking in two decades. All these other things need to be taken into account. There was also a clunker against South Carolina. And this is a school and a program that might actually have with how they've kind of positioned themselves offensively and defensively, they might have the occasional clunker. It happens. Baylor did. That was the offense that they ran. We've seen Oklahoma have them in the past. They've done things that are similar to this style of attack in the past as well. So I think Tennessee, given the fact that their expectations are so insanely high this year, that's where I am a little bit concerned because you know, Bama has been studying them on them all off season. 
You know, Georgia continues to study them because right now they are the second best team in the SEC East and they are the biggest threat to what Georgia's doing. There are some other difficult games on the schedule as well for Tennessee. So, and here's the last thing that I'm just want everyone to be. I'm not necessarily saying that Joe Milton's going to have it down here. I love Joe Milton. I think he's got great, great talent, very gifted player, has played beautifully in the two starts he made last year. Looked good in mop-up duty over the last couple of years. But we all felt really good about DJ Uwe Angelale when he inevitably looked incredible against both Boston College and against Notre Dame. Incredible. Looked really good in those two games as a spot starter in, for Trevor Lawrence, who was out with COVID. This was back in 2020. We all felt really good about what Jeremy Johnson was going to be at Auburn back in 2015. It's very different being the guy that has all the weight of expectations, the excitement people are talking about. Heisman already with Joe Milton. I want you to be pumped about him too. He's got a lot of ability. But sometimes heavy is the head that wears the crown. There's a big burden being the starting quarterback on day one. He has been the starting quarterback on day one twice. He didn't finish either season as the starting quarterback. So I think he's going to have a great year. I really am. But just... Let's just proceed with caution when we start comparing him to you know, the next Peyton Manning. So Tennessee is a team that I think the expectations are a little bit outrageous. And I'm thinking more along the lines of a 9-3 and three type of season, which to me would be a great response to the breakthrough season last year. All right. I can't wait for Vol fans' response on that. Next question here, or fill in the blank, excuse me. The team I'm keeping a close eye on is who? Alabama. And partly because where they were last year, they were a star-driven entity last year. A team that relied on a star offensively in Bryce Young and a star defensively on Will Anderson. And the other 10 guys... They were on offense and defense, looked at their star and said, that guy's going to bail us out. I don't necessarily have to completely go over the top with my responsibility because I know that guy is going to play hero ball and he's going to make it happen for us. Well, Will Anderson, same thing on defense. Think about some of their worst performances. Texas, they didn't play very well. They played okay on defense, right? Texas, they didn't play great though overall as a team. Tennessee, they played terrible, especially on defense. What happened in both those games? Will Anderson was completely shut down. And when Will Anderson shut down, I think that had a trickle-down effect, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, on the entire team. So when you have hero ball and you put so much stock into that one player, it can have a negative impact on everyone else that's on the team. Now, not taking anything away from Bryce, not taking anything away from Will, I just think they had to shoulder too much of the burden last year. Well, now those two guys are gone. And I think there's going to be more of a collective approach amongst the roster to elevate their play. Sometimes when you have a great player, say at wide receiver, well, how do you replace a, since we're talking about Alabama, how do you replace Devontae Smith? Well, you can't do it with one guy. You're going to have to do it with a group of guys collectively to fill that void. Well, when you lose a Bryce Young, can you replace 
his level of play with just one guy? No, you can't. Everyone else around the one guy that replaces Bryce Young is going to have to elevate their game while the young man that whoever takes that starting job gets a little bit more comfortable. So I think that collectively, I just want to see the dynamic with Alabama. I'm fascinated. This team feels not as if they don't have talent. They have a ton of talent, but there's not a superstar that everybody in the country is talking about. Well, Kool-Aid McKinstry might be. Dallas Turner might be. J.C. Latham at tackle might be. They're not the face of college football the way Will Anderson and Bryce Young were heading into 2022. It's hard to be a superstar when you're among superstars on that roster, but I digress. Next question or fill in the blank here. The coach I am most curious about is... Sam Pittman at Arkansas. Now, he had to make some coordinator changes. Kendall Bryles goes back to TCU. And then he, of course, loses his defensive coordinator, Barry Odom, to UNLV. So he's got two new coordinators that are coming in. Dan Enos has worked with Sam Pittman before. He was the offensive coordinator there in the mid-2010s when he was really leading a pretty phenomenal offense there. Brandon Allen and company, they were really good back there in the early 2010s. That was the Brett Bielema era. He was the head coach. Sam Pittman was the offensive line coach. And then Dan Enos was the OC. On the defensive side, a little bit more of a question mark. Travis Williams comes in. He's earning rave reviews, tons of energy. They're really kind of changing who they are almost completely. They were 3-3-5, meaning three defensive linemen, three linebackers, five defensive backs. That's what they were the last couple of years under Barry Odom. Now they're going to be transitioning to more of a four-down defensive line. And they had to really kind of go out and get the pieces for that too. They go and get Trajan Jeffcoat. They add a couple other transfers as well, like John Morgan, Anthony Booker. These guys all come down. They're going to be along the front. But the biggest question mark for Arkansas last year was their secondary. And their secondary, let's be real, they were just not good. I mean, among the worst in college football when it came to giving up big plays, giving up big numbers in the passing game, and they cannot be weak there again. You look at look at some of the offenses they're going to be facing. They better be better in the back end of that defense. Now, they went out and they added some defensive backs from Baylor. Baylor was one of the best pass defenses in the Big 12. So you go out and get Al Walcott. You go out and get uh, Leonardo Johnson. You also go add Jaheim Singletary, transferred from Georgia. He was a five-star coming out of high school. So they went out and they were aggressive in trying to fortify that position. But have they fortified it enough to be able to get over the hump? So it's going to be fascinating to watch that spot. I love Sam Pittman. And Sam Pittman is a very honest man. He's a man that's not going to try to, you know, politic his way to the top of college football. He's already said, this is my last job. I want to be here as long as they'll have me. But this is a pretty significant transition. He hit some home runs when he first got the Arkansas job by going and get two game-changing coordinators. Guys that I think Kendall Browse should be a head coach right now, and Barry Odom had been a head coach in the league. So he got two big-time coordinators when he got the job. Well, now that they're gone, it's the first time he's had to replace those two. So going to be really interesting to see what he does. I think Arkansas is one of those teams that really could finish 9-3 and three, or they could finish 5-7. and seven. I, I mean, I could see a massive gap between their ceiling and their floor. So Sam Pittman's a coach I'll be watching closely. Okay, fill in the blank on this one, and I can't wait for the reaction here. 
My favorite Heisman dark horse is... Emphasis on dark horse. Now, is he really a dark horse? No, you've heard me waxed poetic about the Heisman Trophy. Uh, there's a lot of things I love about the Heisman Trophy. It's tradition. It's the where it stands on the calendar. It's it's fun to kind of stir up some drama throughout the season and to have the Heisman horse race and you know all this other stuff throughout the year. To be honest with you, the Heisman's a popularity contest. And there's probably 15 people in the country that can control the narrative and choose who the Heisman is ultimately going to go to. And unfortunately, most of the people that have major influence on who everyone puts on their ballot, they are watching the playoff race very closely. So the teams that are ultimately in the playoff race are going to be highlighted and the players that are on those teams are going to be highlighted as well. More often than not, the player that gets highlighted from the offense is probably going to be the quarterback. Now, most people will look at Georgia and say Brock Bowers is a great Heisman Trophy candidate. I understand that, but I actually this year looking at Brock Bowers numbers, almost had a thousand yards receiving last year, one of the most accomplished receiving seasons in recent Georgia history. If you actually look at their numbers, they haven't had a 1,000-yard receiver in quite some time. Brock Bowers almost got there. He might get there this year. We'll find out. But I actually think the ball could be spread out a little bit amongst those offensive weapons. I mean, you add two big transfers in the transfer portal. So I think Brock Bowers' Heisman candidacy was actually better last year, perhaps, than it could be this year. Now, he's going to have some momentum, depending on some of the conversation here in the preseason to where he's ultimately going to be a first-team preseason All-American, all these other things. But I think Carson Beck's a Heisman dark horse. Because if you look at the world of college football, how many teams can you tell me without a shadow of a doubt will be in the playoff mix? How many teams? Maybe seven, eight, nine. Maybe if you want to extend it to 12. That's probably as deep as you could go that will be in the playoff mix. Now, I don't think there's 12 teams that will have a conversation about in November, but here in the preseason, there's probably 12 teams like that team can make the playoffs. That team can make the playoffs. Maybe there's a surprise team like TCU last year. No one envisioned them being in the playoff hunt, but there might be a surprise team that emerges, but let's just say it's 12 teams kind of scattered throughout. You got the Ohio state, Bama, Georgia, Florida state, Clemson, Michigan, USC, uh, Penn state, uh, Texas is getting some buzz there. I mean, I'm, I might be missing a, a few others, but but you you understand where I'm where I'm coming from. There's there's not that many teams that you can say, yeah, you know what, they're going to be in the Heisman mix. But I think if everyone were to list, hey, these are are the the playoff mix. These are the playoff contenders. I think Georgia would be probably a unanimous pick. If everyone had to pick four teams to make the college football playoff this year. I'm not saying Georgia would be totally unanimous if you only get to pick four, but they'd probably get 90% of the people that we surveyed across the country. Will Georgia make the playoff? Yes or no? I bet 90% say yes. <laughs> Maybe it feels like that. It certainly feels that, like that to a certain extent. So you have a quarterback on a Heisman contending team that has great weapons and great support and in an offense that might be moving to a little bit more pass happy. So he's going to have really good numbers. Stetson Bennett was a Heisman finalist last year. 
I think Carson Beck will be in the mix at season's end because it's a popularity contest amongst the best players on the best teams. I think Georgia has a chance, obviously, to be one of the best teams. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. All right, fill in the blank here. With a good year, blank could get a big coaching job offer after the season. I'm going to go Shane Beamer from South Carolina. Now, I don't think Shane Beamer's in a real hurry to leave South Carolina. If you talk to him, if you look at his mannerisms, he seems very genuine in his appreciation for Columbia. He'd been there before. This is his second time there. But he's got some he's got some buzz around his name already. People like his personality. People appreciate how he, he can relate to the modern player. He's good as far as marketing himself and marketing his program. He doesn't take himself too seriously. We've seen the videos where he's got the glasses and he's jamming out in the team room. We saw them do the full house spoof. We saw him on the Sopranos uh, movie poster. I mean, we saw him do some things on social media that I think new young players are, are going to probably be attracted to, to a certain extent. They're going to say, man, this guy's, this guy's funny, man. This guy's cool. I want to play for him. So granted, there are also instances this year on his roster where a bunch of guys left the program, and we all know why. NIL opportunities presented themselves, so those guys decided to go. But I think he did such a great job at season's end last year. And just think about these numbers for a moment. These numbers are almost difficult to wrap your head around. Last year in the Southeastern Conference, mind you, a league that has always been talked about as a great line of scrimmage league, they were 117th in rushing defense, and they were 106th in rushing offense. Okay, These are not numbers that you can make up. They averaged 3.8 yards a carry last year. That was 89th in college football. They gave up 4.9 yards per carry last year. That was 115th in college football. And if we're going to take it one step for further, they finished 8-4 and four in the regular season, including... Back-to-back -back wins against top 10 teams in Tennessee and Clemson. So I, I, <laughs> I don't know how you can be that bad against the run and running the football and have offensive challenges the way they've had challenges. They scored seven points against Georgia. No shame in that. Scored 10 points against Missouri. You score six points against Florida. And these are performances that are almost difficult to wrap your mind around, yet they happened. And yet, they're like all in 
on Shane Beamer because he can appeal to the masses. So he also did a great job just finding ways to win. Not a crazy talented roster last year, but they found a way in multiple different games by using special teams, by having key turnovers, by creating big plays, especially against Tennessee. So I think Shane Beamer has a lot of momentum in the world of college football. Will he leave South Carolina? I really don't know the answer to that, but I would be surprised if they have another nice year this year, if he's not on the short list, if there is turnover at some of the biggest jobs in the sport, I think he'd be on the short list for a lot of people. I don't think Ted Lasso is leaving Columbia, but that's just my opinion. Next one, fill in the blank here. The team with the most improved roster from last year to this year is? This is a tough one because when we say most improved, is it because of new additions? Or is it because we look at how improved some of the players are that will have played last year? Because it was really down to two teams for me. There are, if you wanted to go, how much will a team improve, even though a lot of the faces and names are the same? I think it's Texas A&M. Or are we going based off of immediate upgrades at certain position groups on the roster by the way of the transfer portal? Because if we go that direction... It's Ole Miss. I interpret it as the latter. I think Ole Miss had the best transfer additions based on quality. People might say Auburn. People might say other teams. I went with Ole Miss. couple reasons why. Now, Ole Miss already had solid quarterback play last year. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you know their, their quarterback was a massive liability. Their quarterback last year the quarterback room last year, if you will, finished 42nd in college football. Not not terrible in quarterback rating. Not bad. They didn't do a very good job of protecting the football because their touchdown to interception ratio was just 1.8 overall. And 20, you know, 21-10, not great. Or uh, give or take, I mean that whatever it is, but 1.8 on the touchdown interception ratio. Five touchdowns by interceptions, 1.8. That's 78th in college football. So that area need to be addressed. So I already improved the quarterback spot. You go get Spencer Sanders. You go get Walker Howard. Now you have depth at the position, and it actually gives you the opportunity, if you so choose, to incorporate more quarterback run to complement Quinshawn Judkins, who we already know is a, a remarkable, remarkable player probably one of the best in all of college football. You look to number six transfer class, number two transfer class a couple years ago. I mean, they've been all over the place when it comes to adding pieces. A couple things that I really like about this group. And we all know Lane has, has already dubbed himself the, the portal king and and all those other things. I'm not, I don't get that into that. Uh, I don't know. But you add UTSA transfers to Kari Franklin. I think this guy's legit. Uh, you got Dayton Wade. Who's very, very solid as well. You do lose Jonathan Mingo and Malik Heath, which is less than ideal. Those two guys were very solid last year. When you think about what they were able to do, I mean, Mingo, Mingo for instance, by himself, just against Vanderbilt, had a like career game. Uh, you got Trey Harris coming up from Louisiana Tech. Guy was a 1,000-yard receiver last year. And you hear about Jalen Knox, who is electric at Missouri at one point. Spring reports are in, and they're very excited about where they are. That's at receiver. Let's go to tight end, where I'm most intrigued, probably overall. Michael Trigg, 
really talented guy. His buy-in is sometimes maybe a little bit in question, but if there's anything that's going to light the fire, you get Caden Presscorn down from Memphis. This guy's legit. He was all AAC last year. This guy can really play. Um, he led Memphis in touchdowns, led him in receiving yards. This guy's a major difference maker. I know it killed Memphis to lose him. So very excited about the weapons they have. Very excited about the depth at quarterback. Offensive line should be really good as well. And then you think about the other additions that they made. No bigger addition, I think, as far as defensive coordinator in the league from what they had to what they're going to, Pete Golding at Alabama. Now, people are at Ole Miss from Alabama. People love to hate Pete Golding. I think Pete Golding and Nick Saban are very similar personalities. And I think oftentimes they saw the game the same way. So the dynamic between the two was not ideal. Pete Golding, though, knows ball. And if you look back at his defenses at UT San Antonio, you look back at his ability to reach the players and to get great effort from the players. He's done a terrific job of that. And one other thing that I'm very excited about too, and a lot of people have not really discussed this at length because it's just, I don't know, it's just not a great topic of conversation. They made some great portal additions along the defensive front seven. They also made some great portal additions in the back end as well. Defensively, as far as the personnel taking the field, there is no group in the SEC that will be more improved from a personnel standpoint, assuming they stay healthy, than Ole Miss. So I'm kind of bullish right now on, on Ole Miss. You guys know that about me. I think they're extremely dangerous. I think they can beat just about anybody on their roster. Yes, that includes Georgia. Yes, that includes Alabama. I think they can beat them if Georgia plays maybe their C-plus game like they did against Missouri last year. You don't want to have that game against Ole Miss. I'm just saying. If Alabama plays their C-plus game like they did against, say, Tennessee last year, you don't want to have that game against Ole Miss. I think this team's very dangerous, and I think their roster is more complete this year with some of the portal additions. All right, McElroy, and this is not a fill-in-the-blank, but I want to get your thoughts on this. Throughout SEC Media Days, I was really surprised to hear about Auburn and the possibility of them really competing in the SEC this year. I mean, 24-7 Sports had the Iron Bowls, the third best SEC game this year. I mean, come on. Auburn's not going to be able to compete in the SEC West, and the quarterback play might be the worst in the conference. Can you help me understand this preseason Auburn hype? Let's, let's just separate hype from excitement because I think they're different things. Because hype to me is expectations. Hype to me is they, they can actually do something. You can be excited about your team without thinking that they're going to win every game. Auburn should be very excited about what Hugh Freeze has done up to this point. He's done everything right. I mean, from the, from the additions in the portal, from the coordinator hires. I think both are terrific. Philip Montgomery, an experienced head coach, it did a good job at Tulsa. Things, you know, did it a bunch of different ways, by the way. Did a great job at Baylor back in the day. Went out, got Ron Roberts, a guy that was, he taught Dave Aranda defense. I mean, like that, that should tell you all you need to know. And then when you look at where they were from a recruiting class coming into 23, they, they didn't really have anybody. They salvaged somehow a, a solid class. They went out and did a great job. Top five portal class as well. I'm very excited about the future of Auburn football. 
but the present of Auburn football, we are getting out over our skis. I don't know who the quarterback's going to be. I think it'll be Peyton Thorne. Do I think Robbie Ashford will have a role? Absolutely. Absolutely, he'll have a role. He's too dynamic to keep off the field. He's going to need to do something with the quarterback run game. Now, Peyton Thorne, can he run? Sure, but it's not going to be a guy that the defensive coordinator is like, oh, we got we to gotta slow down Peyton Thorne with the, with the ball in his hands. Can't do that. Still have question marks about Jarquez Hunter. If he's available, if he's not available, if he's not, then it's going to be Brian Beatty, who played pretty well at USF, had a 1,000-yard season a year ago. Nothing to be ashamed of there. Here's the position group that I'm most intrigued by because this was such a problem for Auburn last year. At receiver, they have not been good in quite some time. They haven't. So they went out. They've been very aggressive in the portal. They've got four guys in the portal that might be pretty dang solid. You have 6'6 weapon and Nick Mardner from Cincinnati. Two years ago, Mardner was really good at Hawaii, and that was with Marcus Davis, who's his wide receiver coach at Auburn. He had 900-something yards at Hawaii. So maybe Marcus Davis knows how to get the best out of Nick Mardner because last year at Cincinnati, he wasn't really a huge factor. You got Caleb Burton from Ohio State, former top 100 prospect. You got 6'5 weapon, tight end, H-back type, and Rivaldo Fairweather from FIU. And then the big one, Jair Shorter from North Texas. He's a guy that I think can be a really solid number one option for them if the other guys don't materialize into that spot. I want to find out about that group because if that group becomes dynamic, then you got something to complement what should be a decent run game, and then you could be cooking with gas offensively. Like the offensive line last year was a huge problem, went out, was aggressive in the portal. Had three guys with power five and FBS level experience. That's big. You also have a, a young kid that might be immediate contributor as well. So defensively, should be pretty solid. Auburn's always pretty solid. It's going to be tough to replace a Colby Wooden. It's going to be tough to replace a Derek Hall. But they did add some high-level transfer players in the portal. For instance, Justin Rogers was a highly regarded prospect when he went to Kentucky. He's now back at Auburn. You bring in Elijah McAllister from Vanderbilt. So I, I think they've done an adequate job piecing some pieces together. And... Whether or not they're as good as they were last year, I don't know, but they should be salvageable. Here's where I'm at with Auburn as far as win-loss record, okay? UMass is a win. At Cal, feel pretty confident in them there, even though it's a 9.30 local start. And then Samford, they should be 3-0. and They go to Texas A&M. That's not a game that I feel real confident in Auburn. They have Georgia after that. Not real confident in them there. They should be 3-2 and two heading into the bye week. Then you're at Ole Miss. I don't love that matchup for them. You have Ole Miss at home and Mississippi State at home the following two weeks. Those should be games. That's the, that's the make or break for the season. You're at home. Jordan-Hare's a really difficult place to play. If you can get those two games or a split between those two games, now you're looking really solid because you're 4-3 and three with games at Vanderbilt, at Arkansas, you got to get the Vanderbilt win on the road. New Mexico State at home, that should be a win, naturally. If you can get the seven wins, we should feel great about Auburn's first season under Hugh Freeze. Now, I know Auburn fans don't want to hear that. But seven wins, to me, would be a terrific first step. Some people are saying nine. I think that's, I don't want to say it's utterly crazy, because we've seen crazier things happen, like 2012 to 2013 with Auburn. But to envision that type of run, given that schedule, is a hard thing for me 
to anticipate. When we think about the SEC as a whole, Auburn doesn't necessarily fall into this line of thinking to me because I think their ceiling this year is a little bit capped. But if you look at teams four through 10, okay, four through 10 in the SEC and then how, whatever 10 you want to have, if you, to me, when I look at four through 10, I'm talking about the AM, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, South Carolina, Florida, well, in that in that range, like those are kind of the the ten teams or so. If you want to include Arkansas, you want to include Auburn, that's fine. I've never, ever, ever seen a league with so many teams with a crazy low floor and a really high ceiling. For instance, let's go to team number eleven or twelve, South Carolina. Would anyone here with Spencer Rattler at quarterback, y'all tell me, y'all answer this question for me. Would anyone here be shocked if South Carolina and Spencer Rattler turned back the clock, they pulled off some upsets, they won eight games last year. Would anyone be shocked if they won nine this year, went nine and three? Would it absolutely shock you? Remember, this is the 12th team in the SEC. Would it shock you? Because it wouldn't shock me. They went eight and four last year. It would not shock me. But then again, you look at their schedule. And South Carolina's schedule is among the nation's most difficult. I think you, look, Ole Miss in that mix. Uh, Arkansas is in that mix. To me, the toughest amongst the group is South Carolina. Looking at South Carolina's schedule, they could very easily start really slowly. North Carolina, they're an underdog in that game in week one. Got to get firm and naturally, I'm not even going to entertain the discussion there. So at worst, they're one and one. Then you're at Georgia. Mississippi State at home. That's a game you have to win. Have to win. But is it losable? Yes. At Tennessee, going to be a very difficult game. You know, Tennessee's had that one circle. I know you smoked them last year, but you know, Tennessee's had that one circled and things look pretty good. But look at that first five games before the bye. Four of the five are actually losable. So we're talking about a team that, yeah, I think on the high side could go nine and three, but on the low side, they could be four and eight. The gap between their ceiling and their floor is remarkable. And that goes for so many teams in the league. I mean, if Florida, still Florida, if Florida got hot, people think they're going to win five games. If Florida got hot, would it shock you if they went eight and four? But would it shock you looking at their schedule if they went three and nine? Like, it wouldn't shock me. It really wouldn't. So I think what's most interesting about the SEC this year is the gap that exists between the team's ceiling and the team's floor because, my goodness, man, it could be all over the map with some of these prognostications. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. 
Now, we put out some tweets, and we appreciate all you guys that have followed and interacted with us. Follow us at AlwaysCFB or follow me at Greg McElroy. We'll have some interactions. We're trying to have more conversation within the show. We appreciate those that have responded, and we look forward to continuing to interact with you there in our social media. It's on Twitter, on Instagram. You can find us on both platforms. ACC Media Days are next week. And we're kind of wondering, we didn't get a ton of response from this, which makes me think, yes, you think it's a two-team race. (laughs) Is this a two-team race between Clemson and Florida State? Or will someone else step up and surprise like North Carolina did last year? In my opinion, I think it's a two-team race. I think those two have separated themselves. Now, will North Carolina be dangerous? Yes. Will NC State potentially be dangerous? Brennan Armstrong quarterback? Sure. But other than that, man, it's almost difficult. Will Miami bounce back in a huge way? I hope. Maybe not to the point which they're within striking distance of winning the league. So we will talk at length about where the ACC is at next week. So keep it locked in here on Always College Football. Now, we also put out a tweet about the Big Ten. Big Ten media days. Outside of Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State, who will have a breakout season and why? Really liked some of the responses here. Was a little curious where things would go. And I kind of am in line with several of the people that responded. According to Brash Talk on College Football, I don't know what we're characterizing as, quote, breakout, but I like what Matt Rule's doing at Husker Football Nation. I at least expect them to be a lower tier bowl. That's it. Right there, Brash Talk. We are on the same page, brother, because I really believe that if Matt Rule can get them to a bowl game, now remember, it's been a while. We have not seen Nebraska in the postseason in quite a while. If he can get them to the bowl game, I think he will. I like Jeff Sims, a quarterback. I like some of the additions they've made. I love the momentum that's been created on the on the recruiting trail. If he can get them to a bowl game, man, you get those 15 extra practices for some young guys, that would be huge. So I'm really bullish on Nebraska here in the future. But man, breaking through in year one, getting to the postseason, that'd be really big. Ron Blakely at Blakely Ron. Ron Blakely at Blakely Ron. Love it. Do you see any magic for Wisconsin? I do. As you guys have probably watched, check out our preseason top 25. Those shows were a couple weeks back. I have Wisconsin in the top 15. I think they're very dangerous. I love Tanner Mordecai. I think defensively, they're not going to fall off as much as most people have anticipated. That's been a strong and proud group for as long as I can remember. And Phil Longo, whether he runs it or he throws it, he's going to create challenges for the defense. He's scored points everywhere he's ever been, including Sam Houston State, Ole Miss, North Carolina, and now he's going to do so in Madison. Very bullish on what Wisconsin could be this year. Will they ultimately get into that top three? I don't think so. I think Michigan, Penn State, and Ohio State have separated themselves a little bit, but I wouldn't be surprised if Wisconsin's sitting there at number four. And then finally, Chris Colties, at Colties Chris, look out for Iowa in the West. Strong defense with the addition of two former Michigan starters, Cade McNamara and Eric All, could be enough to punch their ticket to Indy. Well said, Chris, man. I love the addition of Cade McNamara. He's the best option they've had at quarterback in quite a while. At least it feels like he's the best option they've had. Now, they've had some talent at that position, but they've never really given them much opportunity. I really think, maybe I'm crazy, I feel like all the offseason scuttlebutt about Iowa's offense and they got to hit those numbers for their coaches to basically get paid or to retain their jobs, then I think there's going to be a little bit, they're not going to abandon who they are. 
They play ball control. They play complimentary. They take the wind out of the football. They try to shorten the game. That's who they are. And that's not going to go away. And now that the clock's going to run out the first downs, like they're going to shorten the game even more. There's going to be less snaps for the opposing offense. So the defense, statistically, might be better than last year. But I'm really optimistic about their improvements with some of the skill positions. They've always had good tight ends and we'll have good tight ends again, but the improvement at quarterback has been what's held them back a little bit, man. I'm super optimistic about whether or not Cade McNamara can upgrade that position. That'll do it for us here at always college football. Thank you so much for those that haven't, please like rate, subscribe to the podcast. If you're on the ESPN YouTube page, hit that thumbs up. It means a lot, awful lot to us. Share it with your friends, whatever you want to do to help spread the word. We so appreciate all of you for being with us this week. It was such a really rewarding week, the unofficial kickoff of the college football season, Media Days. Still got plenty more coming up next week. We have ACC Media Days. We have Pac-12 Media Days that we will review. We have Big Ten Media Days coming up here in a couple days as well. So a lot that we still need to get to. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, for Jake, for Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a remarkable day. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.